Let us pray. O God, who's caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We had a break last week, um, thanks to the weather, but we are back in session today, and we are beginning a new chapter in Romans. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 4. Before we do that, on some of your tables, you'll find a little card. This is a public service announcement as we begin. It's actually an advertisement for the Mere Anglicanism Theological Conference that's going to be coming up in January. Um, we have not publicized this at this point beyond St. Philip's, but we've already got about 200 people that are signed up. As I've said, if you plan to come, we have some of the greatest theologians, really, alive and working today who are going to be there, some of the great minds of Christianity and some of the great scholars on C.S. Lewis. If this is of interest to you, I encourage you to sign up sooner rather than later. Uh, you can just go to mereanglicanism.org. The information is right there on that little card, so you can take that home with you. But if you do hope to come to this conference, let me encourage you to sign up sooner rather than later. Because um, once it hits the blogosphere and once it hits the magazines, and we are advertising in a number of publications, uh, we suspect that it will fill pretty rapidly. So um, if you want to take advantage of that, this is a great ministry of St. Philip's now. Um, so let me just commend that to you. Well, we are in Romans chapter 4 today, and we're going to go ahead and read through the entire chapter today. It's a brief chapter, relatively speaking, but it is packed full of some very important information. So Romans chapter 4, again, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. You may have another version, that's all right. There may be some slight variations, but you'll get the gist. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, 
so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not only or merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now there's a lot there in that fourth chapter. And Paul's writing style can sometimes be a little difficult to follow. But there's nothing wrong with his logic, and that's what we're going to see. Paul was a brilliant lawyer, if you will. Uh, he knew how to build an argument, and that's the best way, really, to understand Romans. Many of you, I'm sure, at one point or another in your lives have received letters, perhaps long letters, from somebody... And the first thing you do is you'll do a cursory read. But then to make sure that you got it right, and maybe it's not a letter from somebody you like, maybe it's a letter from the IRS or something like that, you'll read through it quickly to see what the bottom line is, but then you go back because you want to make sure you've got the details. Well, it's important to understand that when Romans was first sent to the church there in the imperial capital, this epistle from Paul, the people probably did the first. They probably read through this letter rather quickly, and they got the basic gist of it, and then over the years, just as we have done, they went through it to get the details. They studied it, they read it, they marked it, they learned, inwardly digested it, just as we said in that opening call it. But sometimes when you do the latter, you can lose the thread of what Paul is saying. And so, again, I keep doing this, but it's important. We need to understand the flow of this letter so far. What Paul is doing, basically, is building an argument for the gospel, an argument for Christianity, for the Christian faith. He starts off in chapter 1 by talking about the human problem. Well, what's wrong with the human race? One commentator said it is a race in ruins. And that's what the first two chapters, really, of this epistle are all about. Paul is, well, basically diagnosing the problem. 
He's going to go on to prescribe a cure, but he's going to begin by diagnosing the problem. And what is the problem? The problem, he said, is that you and I are under the wrath of God. We're under the judgment of God. Now, again, we've said this before. People don't like to hear about wrath these days. They don't want to believe in judgment. Sometimes people will say, I could just never believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. How many of you have ever said that? Don't show me your hands. But there are many people who feel that way. Now, they don't really mean that. What they really mean is that they don't want to believe in a God of wrath. They don't want to believe in a God of judgment. They don't want to believe in a God who could send somebody to hell. But they can conceive of such a God. And Paul says that is the God with whom we have to deal. He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is long-suffering. He is a God who is compassionate, but he is also a God of justice. And he takes seriously the business of being God. And that's the problem. The problem, he says, is that we are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God, because we're not satisfied playing second fiddle to the Lord of the universe. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. We want to be the masters of our own fate. We want to be the captains of our own destiny. And so, Paul says, what we do is we suppress the truth about God, and we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we begin to serve and worship created things rather than the Creator. And when we do that, we start on this downward spiral. It's a moral downward spiral spiral. And things only go from bad to worse, and you know you've hit the bottom of that spiral when what? When you are calling things that God calls good, you're calling evil, and what God calls evil, we are calling good. And I think most of us would probably agree, we're there. We're there in our culture, we're there in our world. Things that God calls good, we mock, we make fun of, we ridicule. And things that God calls evil, we praise. We rejoice in them. We even promote them. And when you reach that point, you're under the wrath, you're under the judgment of God. It's like declaring war on God. And of course, the problem with declaring war on God is that you can't win. He's the Lord of the universe. And so your only hope of survival is to make peace, to make peace with God. But what can you and I offer to God that he cannot provide for himself? That's the great question. I mean, we, we tend to think that we can make a peace offering with God, but be honest, what is it that you, you may have a conflict with somebody else and you can offer a peace offering to them and perhaps that will placate. But with God, what is it that you and I, mere mortals, mere creations, can possibly offer to him as a peace offering that he cannot already provide for himself? Nothing. And so Paul says our only hope then of salvation, our only hope of deliverance, our only hope of not being absolutely destroyed is if God, who is the injured party, decides to make peace with us. Not because he's under any obligation to do so, and not because he necessarily needs us, but because he is loving and merciful. 
And Paul says that, of course, is exactly what God has done. God has made possible a righteousness that does not come through any human effort. It is a righteousness, he says, that comes from God. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. So chapters 1 and 2 are the diagnosis. Chapter 3 of Romans is the prescription. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, that is, apart from human effort, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how we escape the wrath of God. That's how we come into a right relationship with God, which is something that we do not have by nature. It is by faith in the peace offering that God has made for us. And that peace offering, of course, is Jesus Christ. And we come into that relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was wonderful at providing illustrations. I often emphasize to the clergy, sometimes we'll do an after-battle report from the sermons and say, well, you know, how do you think it went? Oh, well, I don't know. What do you think? And, you know... Sometimes what I'll say is it begged for an illustration. You know what an illustration is? I'm not big on storytelling. You know, whole sermons that are stories that you sort of weave. I'm always big on just take the text and explain what the text is saying. So you're out of the picture and God has the opportunity to speak. But I do think that sometimes illustrations are important because illustrations are like windows. You know what a window does? It lets the light in. That's what an illustration does. An illustration lets the light in. So if you're dealing with a very deep theological concept, I say it begs for an illustration. It begs for some sort of picture that will allow the light to come in. Well, that is exactly what Paul is going to provide for us here in Romans chapter 4. He's been talking about saving faith that which brings us into a relationship with God, a right relationship which we do not have in and of ourselves. But now he's going to give us a picture of what this faith looks like. And it was a picture that would have been very familiar to his audience, particularly to the Jewish contingent within the church in Rome. And the illustration that he provides, the example of this saving faith, of course, is the most respected figure in all of Judaism. It's Abraham. It's Abraham. So Romans chapter 4 again. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham is not only the most respected figure in Judaism, he is still one of the most respected figures in the world today. Of the three great religions, Abraham is respected by Muslims, by Jews, and by Christians, isn't he? Well, that's not true of every other figure in the Bible, but it certainly is true of Abraham. He is revered by all of those religions. 
and especially by the Jews and the Christians, because the Jews regard Abraham as what? The father of their nation. What makes a person a Jew is that they are a descendant of Abraham. That's what makes a person Jewish, is that they are descended from Abraham. He is the fountainhead of the Jewish people. But he is also, for Christians, the origin of our salvation. The origin of our salvation. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn back for a moment to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we studied Matthew, but it's been some time since we were in Matthew chapter 1. But go back to Matthew for just a moment. The very first verse of that gospel. Here's how Matthew begins. We said that, that each of the gospels begins in a slightly different way. But Matthew and Luke in particular begin with genealogies. Now, John begins with the preexistent logos. Mark begins with Jesus' public ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. But Matthew and Luke trace Jesus' lineage. And look at how Matthew begins. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now, David, of course, was Israel's great king. But he traces his lineage back to who? To Abraham. The genealogy goes on. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So it takes us from David the whole way through the kings, the good kings and the bad kings. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So for the Jews and for Christians, Abraham is a very important figure. And what's even more impressive about Abraham is that he is given a moniker unlike any other. In all scripture, 
Abraham alone is described in three places as God's friend. How would you like to have that title applied to you? That he is God's friend. I mean, it's great to be Bill Warlick's friend. It's great to be Miss M's friend. But to be God's friend. That's how he's described in Scripture, twice in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, as God's friend. God saying, oh, yes, that's Abraham. That's my friend. That's an extraordinary statement. That's who we're talking about here. And so if Paul is going to give us an example of faith, he could hardly have chosen a better person. Everybody universally would agree that Abraham was a superb individual, a most worthy individual. But the question is this, how did he become God's friend? And when did he become God's friend? Those are the two questions that Paul is going to tackle here in Romans chapter 4. And he's going to use Abraham as an illustration for our own lives. The question we have to ask ourselves as we're reading through Romans chapter 4 is, when did we become God's friend? And how did we become God's friend? So that's what Romans chapter 4 is really all about. How Abraham was made righteous because that's what it means to be in a right relationship with God. That's how you become God's friend. And he's going to deal with when Abraham became God's friend. Now, the first thing Paul acknowledges is that Abraham wasn't always God's friend. That's important to understand. He became God's friend, but he wasn't always God's friend. Why? Because Abraham was no better off than the rest of us. Abraham, even though he was a great individual, was still a sinner. You know, this is something that we have to remember about some of the great heroes of the faith, is that there is a sense in which they're in the same boat that we are. Now, you may think to yourself, well, the Virgin Mary, she's, she's much better off than we are. But I'm, I'm reminded of something Bishop Hanley Mole, the great scholar Bishop of Durham, once said. He said, you may think that you're better than a prostitute, you may think you're better than a murderer. He said, but it's really only a difference of degree. He said, they may be in the bottom of a well or a mine shaft, and you may be standing on the top of the highest Alps. He said, but you're both incapable of reaching the stars. And you're as incapable of reaching the stars as they are. You see, the great heroes of the faith, from God's perspective, are in the same boat as the rest of us. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And as Paul says a chapter earlier in this same epistle, there's no one righteous, not one. There's no one who seeks God. All together, he says, we are worthless. 
So that's what we need to understand is that Abraham became a friend of God, but he wasn't always a friend of God. It's something that happened to him. Now, it's really interesting the way that Paul puts it here. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And that word flesh is an interesting word. It is the Greek word sarx. And I only bring it to your attention here because in the Greek, this is a somewhat contested passage. We're not exactly sure what Paul meant here. He meant one of two things, and I would probably go so far as to say that he meant them both that it was really a play on words. When he says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, that seems to imply that Abraham is our forefather. You can trace your genealogy back to Abraham in the same way that Matthew did with Jesus. That's what makes us Jews, Paul would say to the Jewish audience there in Rome. It's the fact that we can trace our lineage, our heritage, our family tree back to Abraham in the flesh. And he might mean that. But what is interesting is that in the New Testament, whenever we hear that word flesh, sarks, it's almost always, without exception, a reference to our sinful nature. That's why as Christians we battle against three great forces. What do we battle against? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So what exactly is Paul referring to? Is he describing Abraham as simply our forefather, our ancestor, or is he talking about our ancestor in sin? And I rather suspect that it's probably both. The Jews prided themselves on being the children of Abraham, and that was true. But Paul is reminding them that not even Abraham, for all his greatness, was perfect. He was fallen, and he too, like everyone else, was under the judgment of God. But nobody would deny the fact that Abraham nevertheless became righteous. Nobody would deny the fact that Abraham nevertheless entered into a right relationship with God. Nobody would deny the fact that Abraham was, in the end, God's friend. The only question, the only two questions are, how did that happen, and when did it happen? And Paul will ask a series of rhetorical questions, one of which is this. Did he do it by his own works? Did Abraham, by his own efforts, by his own striving, come into a right relationship with God? Nobody would deny the fact that Abraham was an extraordinary man. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, which is the story of Abraham, you find that when he appears on the scene, he has been living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. He is a pagan, all right? He's worshiping idols. And God appears to Abraham and tells him to leave his home and to go off into a far place where God has prepared a land for him. Now, just think about that for a minute. We read these stories and we forget the human, the visceral element involved. But imagine if God were to simply say to you, I want you to Pick up everything that you have, and I want you to leave. Now, those of you who've been raised in Charleston your whole life, this is your family home. You've lived here. Perhaps your children and your grandchildren live here. And God says, I want you to pick up what you've got, and I want you to leave. And where am I going? I'm going to send you to some place you've never been before. It's very different from this. 
Um, California, for example. I mean, how different could that? And I'm going to send you there, and I'm going to give you a land of your own. How many of you would say, I'm on it, Lord? Most of us would be very resistant to that. But the thing about Abraham, we're told, is that he did not question. He did not second guess. He immediately obeyed God. And so the Jews looked at him as an example to follow because that's what they were expected to do. They were expected to give God unquestioned obedience. And as Christians, incidentally, we're expected to do the same. You know, very often we will follow somebody if they give us a good reason for following them. But the idea of following somebody blindfolded, as it were, let's be honest, we are very reluctant to do so. But Abraham did it. And so someone might say, well, that's how Abraham came into a right relationship with God. God told him to do something, and by golly, he got up and he did it. And that's how he came into a right relationship with God. Well, Paul says, if that is the case, then Abraham would have a reason to boast, wouldn't he? He'd have a reason to boast. He'd be able to say, I'm God's friend because I obeyed God's command. And if that's what it takes to be God's friend, how many of you think you're going to have a friendship with God? Very few of us, I suspect. None of us, in fact, would be able to have a relationship with God. The reason why Paul uses that term boast, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, is because if you want to understand what the Bible means by good works, it's important to understand that good works are the equivalent of performance. It's how we perform. You know, if you perform well on the stage, you get what? Applause. And many people thought, well, that's how Abraham came into a right relationship with God, because of his performance. And yet Paul says, no. Abraham had nothing to boast about, certainly not before God. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not, he says, before God. So he may be able to boast before men, but he could not boast before God. Why? Because that's not what brought him into a right relationship with the Lord. So how did he come into a right relationship with the Lord? Paul tells us. He's already intimated. He's already hinted at it thus far in this epistle. He says he did it by faith. He did it by faith. And this becomes clear if you go back and you read the story in Genesis. So keep your finger there in Romans. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. Not hard to find the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. So just turn left and stop when you hit the table of contents. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Note his name is different. God is going to change his name. But his name here is Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. 
and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, a little bit of backstory. We don't have the time to go back and read all the way up to this point in the book of Genesis. But when God appeared to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and Abraham asks the question, how can that be because I have no children? You understand that in ancient cultures, producing heirs and continuing the family name was of the utmost importance. That was the greatest blessing that anybody could receive. So when God comes and says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham's wondering, how can that be? I don't even have any children. And Paul supplies us with a little bit of information. He tells us that when God said this to Abraham, Abraham was an old man. I think it's a rather grim description. He was as good as dead. I mean, that's how Paul describes him. He was as good as, what a terrible thing to say about anybody. He had one foot in the grave and the other on the banana peel. He was as good as dead. And God comes to him and says to him, in his 90s, you are going to have children. Your own children. He's as good as dead. Sarah's well beyond childbearing age. But we're told he did what? He believed the Lord. Against everything that the world would tell him, perhaps even against everything that his heart was telling him, he believed the Lord. And the latter part of that verse, this is one of the most important verses, incidentally, in the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, one of the most important verses in all the Bible. He believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. That's the answer to the first question. How did Abraham come into a right relationship with the Lord? He believed him. Now, believe here is not simply believing in, it's believing on. It's the equivalent of trust. You've got to trust God. God spoke to him, made him a promise that seemed to be impossible, but he trusted that with God all things are possible. And because he believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. He became God's friend. Now that's the first question that Paul answers. Go back now to Romans, if you would, please. Now, Paul is going to go on to answer the other question, and that is when this took place. Because for Jews, this was vitally important. And it's vitally important for Paul's argument that we are justified, we come into a right relationship with God. Because there could be, this is one of the wonderful things about Paul, Paul could anticipate the objections. You know, that's what a good lawyer does. If he's in a courtroom, before the other side has an opportunity to stand up and say, I object, you anticipate the objection and you answer the question beforehand. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do. 
Somebody might say, oh yeah, that's true, but that took place after he'd already been circumcised. Paul knows that's an objection that might possibly be raised, and so he goes back and he deals with that question. When did this take place? When did he come into a right relationship with God? Was this before or was this after circumcision? Now, we can't be prudish about this. You understand, don't plug your ears, it is what it is. The reality is the sign of the Jewish covenant, the sign that they were being marked out, was circumcision. Why do you think God chose that particular sign? I think one of the reasons he chose it was because it was a continuous reminder. A man had to look at himself every single day, several times a day, and it was a reminder. So it was done in the flesh in this way. It was a constant reminder, you're different, you're marked out, you're separate. And of course, that became the Jewish rite all the way down. God made a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And if you were a Jew and a descendant of Abraham, circumcision was the sign that God had been true to his promise and God would be true to his promise to his people for eternity. So circumcision was very important. It was the sign of the covenant. And the Jews prided themselves on being the children of the covenant. Incidentally, for us today, what is the sign of the covenant? It's baptism. You've heard of the old covenant and the new covenant. What's the sign of the old covenant? The sign of the old covenant is circumcision. What is the sign of the new covenant? It is baptism. This is why I remind people can a person be saved and refuse baptism? Can you? No. Now, you can be saved without baptism, as was the case with the thief on the cross. But Jesus commands us to be baptized if the opportunity is there. And nobody can say, well, Jesus is Lord, but I'm not getting baptized. Because baptism is a sign of the covenant. It is the sign that you're being made part of the Christian community. And circumcision was the sign that you were a part of the Jewish community. And it was very important to Jews. So important, in fact, that they argued that a person could not become a Jew without circumcision, and you could not be saved unless you were a Jew which became a problem in the New Testament period. You can imagine as Paul is going out and preaching to a Greco-Roman culture, and they said, oh, yes, we accept this. We accept Jesus. We understand that he's the Jewish Messiah, but he came to be our Messiah too. What do I need to do in order to be saved? And the Jewish people would have said, you have to be circumcised. Well, that's a real problem for some of these men. I got a what? And so there was rejection. This became such an issue, incidentally, that the first church council, the first council in the history of the church was called over this very point. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn to the book of Acts. Easy to find. If you're in Romans, it's one book to your left. So we're in Acts chapter 15. Now let me give you a little bit of background so you can understand what's happening here while you're turning there. 
Paul and his traveling companion Silas had gone off on their first missionary journey. This is the first of Paul's journeys. These journeys, of course, would turn the world upside down. You and I are sitting here today in large measure because of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And the first one was a relatively brief one compared to the others, the second and third journeys, for example. Paul left a place called Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. This was Antioch in Syria. He and his traveling companion, Barnabas, traveled down to a coastal town called Seleucia. They took a boat across to the Isle of Cyprus, and they preached the gospel there in Cyprus. Then they went up to the continent to a place called Pisidian Antioch. All right, there's Syrian Antioch. This is the other Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Then they traveled through Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, I just mentioned Lystra because Lystra is where Paul will ultimately preach the gospel and a young boy will be converted. His name is Timothy. You're going to hear about him in the sermon this Sunday. But once they finish in those towns, in which they were persecuted in every one of those towns, incidentally, they go back through those towns to Antioch and Syria again. Now, when they do that, word spreads that people have believed the gospel. These, these churches, they were just little house communities, had been established in every one of those places, and the church began to grow. In fact, it began to grow so great that word got back to Jerusalem that Paul and, and Silas and others and Timothy, but Barnabas in particular, they'd been out, they'd been preaching the gospel, the, the gospel was spreading, people were embracing Jesus Christ. But somebody says, yeah, but there's a problem. What's the problem? He's preaching that they can become friends of God through faith in Jesus Christ without being circumcised. What? Paul wouldn't do that. He is. That's what he's preaching. Well, that's a problem. And so they call the first church council to deal with this. Because there were Jewish Christians. Remember, the first Jew Christians were Jews. So they were already circumcised. And they embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And now what? Gentiles are coming to Jesus without being circumcised. And so they have this first church council, and that's what's described in Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, this is a salvation issue. This is just not you know, a minor issue of doctrine. This is how, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I don't think Paul had a small dissension or debate with anybody, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This question, circumcision. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That is to say, all the kosher laws. 
The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, and I say these are some of the most gracious words to ever come out of the mouth of the Apostle Peter. You know, sometimes he got it wrong. We all know that. Peter was afflicted with foot and mouth disease. But here he gets it right, and he not only gets it right, he's gracious. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Why do I say that's gracious? It's gracious precisely because we would accept, expect Peter to say it the other way around. We would expect Peter to say, speaking of these Gentiles, that we believe that they will be saved just as we have been. That's not what he says. He says, we believe that we will be saved just as they have been. And how have they been saved? Not by circumcision, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, now go back to Romans and what Paul is saying here. He's saying that's how Abraham was saved. He was saved before he was circumcised. Long before he was circumcised, as a matter of fact. It was Genesis chapter 15 where he believed God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. You've got to go two chapters and several decades later, or at least a decade later, to get to the circumcision. So how did Abraham come into a right relationship with God? Abraham came into a right relationship with God by faith, not by anything that he did. He wasn't in a right relationship with God initially. He came into a right relationship with God by faith. And then, as a sign of that faith, but not as a means to it, but as a sign of that faith, he was circumcised. And Peter says, that's how a person is saved. That's how Jews are saved, whether they realize it or not, and that's how Gentiles are saved as well. So who are the descendants, then, of Abraham? Who are the real children of Abraham? Those who bear a mark in the flesh? It's not what Paul says. No, he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that he would be the heir for the world. And that promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness that is by faith. That is why it depends on faith, verse 16 in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, that is, to Jews, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham? Not just somebody that can trace their lineage back to Abraham, 
but somebody who is a child of Abraham by faith. Now, if you think that that is just Paul's opinion in the matter, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. I'm belaboring the point because it's a very important point. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. This is the beginning of the gospel. And one of the promises made in the Old Testament was that before the Messiah, the Christ would appear upon the scene, there would be a forerunner. And who was that forerunner? That forerunner was going to be John the Baptist. So, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read through the first 10 verses or so. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and remember, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that in Acts chapter 15 prided themselves on what? Circumcision. They're the party of the circumcised. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, this is the critical verse, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So who are the true children of Abraham? The true children of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith. Now you say, well, what about those people in the Old Testament who never even knew Jesus, who lived centuries before he ever appeared on the scene? They are saved in the same way that Abraham was saved. Abraham believed the promise of God. It was an unfulfilled promise, but he trusted that God was going to fulfill it. You and I believe in Jesus Christ because we live after the promise has been fulfilled. But they believed even though the promise had not yet been fulfilled. So we are saved in the same way that they are. So let me just give you a brief summary of Paul's argument thus far. I was going to talk about baptism, but we're not going to have a chance to do that today. We'll come back to that because it is, as I said, the New Testament equivalent of circumcision, and many people think that if you're baptized, just as many Jews believed, if you're circumcised, you're automatically a children, a child of Abraham, you're automatically in. And many people think that as long as you're baptized, your ticket is punched and you're going to heaven, you don't have anything to worry about. And that's why many people feel that I've got to get the kid baptized. I've got to get my grandchild baptized, because what happens if they're not baptized? So I want to come back to that theme next week. But let me just go ahead and summarize what Paul is saying at this point. He's saying Abraham was a friend of God. He was righteous. But this friendship with God, this right relationship with God, did not come as a result of Abraham's works. This righteousness came by faith, by faith in God, by trust in God, 
even when everything within him railed against it. And circumcision, the sign of the covenant, the sign of the faith was received after, not before justification. And all who walk according to faith are children of Abraham. And therefore, relatives of Jesus. Stories told about William Ewart Gladstone, you probably know, famous British statesman in the 19th century. Story goes that Gladstone was visiting an antique shop one day in London, and he saw a portrait hanging on the wall. It was a late 16th century, early 17th century portrait. And it showed this man in Spanish attire. He had a big plumed hat, and he had a ruff, and he had these white cuffs. And the painting was really impressive. It was a beautiful portrait. And Gladstone wanted to buy it, but he thought that it was too expensive. He couldn't afford it. And so he walked out of the store very depressed and discouraged that he couldn't get this painting. About two weeks later, he was visiting on official business the home of a wealthy London merchant. And he walked into the drawing room, and what did he see hanging above the mantle but this portrait this portrait that he had so admired in the antique shop. And as he's standing there looking at it, the owner of the house, the merchant, says to him, what do you think? He said, oh, it's magnificent. He said, oh, that's my ancestor who served in the court of Queen Elizabeth I. Now, Gladstone knew that was a lie. He'd just seen the painting two weeks before. And it was being sold as an unknown sitter. So he knew this guy was making it up. And the merchant said, what do you think? And Gladstone turned to him and he said, I think that if it was three pounds cheaper, he would be my ancestor. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know what your family history is. I don't know who your ancestors are. Maybe you come from an illustrious line. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do come, as I once thought, from thieves and robbers. But I'll tell you this much, really doesn't matter. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of the most noble family that ever existed. You become an heir, a child, a descendant of Abraham. And there can be no more noble ancestry than that. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul and for his great mind and for this powerful illustration of Abraham, our forefather in the faith. We pray, Father, that we might not puff ourselves up thinking that we can come into a right relationship with you by virtue of anything we do. Whether we stand in the bottom of the shaft or whether we are on the highest peak of the Alps, the reality is we are incapable of reaching the stars. We cannot reach you. Our only hope is that you will reach down to us. And that is exactly what you have done. And your precious son took on our flesh, born of a virgin, suffered and died and rose again, that by placing our faith in him, 
we might become part of this forever family. Grant us the grace, Lord, to revel in that and to share this good news with others that our brothers and sisters may abound throughout the earth. In Jesus' name we pray.